Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. We ready up that? All right, Shabbat Shalom. We're continuing our series today on the book of Romans. Today is part 21, and we're going to finish up Romans chapter 12 today, uh, focusing on godly, Yeshua-like character traits. So we're going to read Romans together, uh, Romans 12, 9 to 11. We'll put that on the overhead as well, Romans 12, 9 to 11. If we can get that on the, on the overhead, please. There we go. Uh, Paul says, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what's evil. Cling to what's good. Be kindly affectionate to one another in brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Now, these are all uh, character traits. Uh, and in fact, there's a list, if you count them all, there's a list of 27 Messiah-like character traits delineated in the second half of Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9. And we looked at some of these last time. If you remember, we focused on patience and forgiveness. And I want to look at some more uh, this week. And I want to challenge you, as we go through these character traits, to really examine yourself. Because this is what being like Yeshua, like Messiah, is really like. This is what it means. Uh, And so as we look at these verses today, open your hearts to the Holy Spirit. Let him shine his light on your heart condition. Uh, And let your attitude be, Lord, I want to be today on your potter's wheel being shaped uh, and changed and molded by you into your image. So look at, let's look at Romans 12.9. Let love be without hypocrisy. Uh, abhor what's evil. Cling to what's good. Any way we can get those overheads up more, they're falling off the screen. <laughs> uh, so the first character trait uh, is that let love be without hypocrisy. The first character trait is being sincere, uh, not being hypocritical. Let love be without hypocrisy. Notice it's not a question of whether you're going to love. Uh, if you are true, if you are a true Yeshua follower, uh, this assumes that you are going to love. But Paul here says how we're to love without hypocrisy. Now, 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 what's hypocrisy? Uh, the popular understanding of hypocrisy is saying one thing and doing another. Right? So, for example, someone says to you, you shouldn't smoke, uh, but they're smoking. Uh, and yes, that's one obvious uh, aspect of being a hypocrite. Uh, but Paul here is going in deeper than that. He's, he's saying more than that. Hypocrisy is not just saying one thing and, and, and uh, doing another. Uh, hypocrisy, at its essence, is faking it. Uh, in fact, this is why the word actor uh, is connected to the word hypocrite. Uh, the picture is an actor on the stage uh, going through the motions, uh, being fake, being insincere. He's just playing a role. Now, uh, this letter is addressed to the believers in Rome. Why does the Holy Spirit, through Paul, through Rav Shaul, need to tell the believers to be sincere, to, to not be hypocrites? Why does the Lord need to uh, exhort them here not to fake their love? Not to pretend uh, that we love one another when we don't, or if we don't. Well, the Holy Spirit, I think, is warning us here, this could be me. 
take heed lest you fall. So this is needful advice. So let's not automatically assume, well, not me, not me, not me. Rather, we should think, maybe this is me. Lord, show me my hidden sin. And and Paul's writing this warning here because we today need to hear this. And, And we see this even among believers in the New Testament. For example, Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5 are a perfect example of this. Remember, they they brought a gift and offering to the Messianic community. They laid the money at the apostles' feet. Uh, They said, these are the proceeds from this property we sold. But in reality, they held some back. But they claimed that they were donating 100%. Why? In order to make themselves look good. Uh, So they're being deceitful. And they're pretending to be more loving and more generous than they really were. And so God strikes them dead. And we read this in Acts 5.11. Great fear seized the whole congregation and all those who heard about these events. Now imagine if God today struck dead every hypocrite in the congregation. How many of us would be left? (laughs) Not a very good congregational growth strategy. (laughs) Now, uh, these were the first blatant public hypocrites in the early Messianic community. So God's making an example here, the first time it happened, so that we won't forget it. And God does this throughout the Hebrew Scriptures as well. Uh, So for the first time, the people make a blatant show of disobedience after a new law is laid down. God often sets an example. We see this, for, for example, with the guy gathering sticks on Shabbat, right? Right after the Ten Commandments were given. God commanded that he be stoned to death. We see this with the golden calf, the breaking of the first commandment against idolatry. And 3,000 were slain. So we see these extreme consequences to the first lawbreakers after a new thing starts. This is to draw our attention to it. But if God were to deal with every lawbreaker this way, there'd be no one left. <laughs> so here's the point. Hypocrisy will kill the congregation. Hypocrisy is death to a covenant community. And, and, and here's the, uh, the part that, that's sobering. We all need to say, my hypocrisy will kill my congregation. We need to look within and say, the falseness, the fakeness uh, that I bring, often not even purposely, but because, you know, I want to look good or I want to look religious or I want to look spiritual, this can undermine true community and love and sincerity. But notice the text that says, don't let your love be an hypocrisy. Now, why would I be a hypocrite in regards to love? Why would my motivation be for pretending to love when I'm really not being loving? Well, one motivation is because I want to fit in. Here I am in a messianic shul, where Yeshua and his love are proclaimed as supreme, so I might feel that I need to pretend uh, to love the Lord or pretend uh, that I love you, so I might feel an obligation to just fake it. And let's be honest, we are fooled by fakers all the time. That's why, for example, we enjoy TV and movies, right? None of these actors or actresses are really who they pretend to be, but we suspend our disbelief Uh, And we love watching these shows and these movies. But think about what you're watching. Let's take a medical show, for example. None of these people in the show are really doctors. (laughs) 
None of these sick people are really sick. <laughs> None of these surgeries are actually happening. <laughs> you know, and sometimes today, nowadays, the actors are talking uh, to an imaginary figures on a blue screen <laughs> that are later filled in with CGI. So no one's even there. It's all pretend. And we need to make sure that EC never becomes a fake show like that. And that I'm not like that. So, for example, when I'm praying for someone, I need to really be honestly praying. Uh, I need to be travailing and interceding for them. My heart goes out to them. I sincerely cry out for God's blessing on them. When I'm participating in praise and worship, I need to be really worshiping the Lord uh, with all my mind and heart and soul and spirit and strength, with complete intentionality and fervor and passion uh, and kavanah, as you say in Hebrew. And scripturally, Hebraically, this often means worshiping with my whole body, shouting, clapping, raising hands, bowing, kneeling, dancing, falling prostrate on my face before the Lord. These are all scriptural, biblical, Hebraic forms of worship. And doing the same thing in my private worship, whether anyone is there to see me or not. So we're not to be self-conscious in our worship or worried about what other people will think about us because we're not doing it for them. We're doing it under the Lord. So let your love, your love for God, your love for others, be genuine. Let it be without hypocrisy. Because you can fool other people, but you cannot fool God. He sees your heart. He sees your inner motives and your thoughts and your attitudes and your intentions. And when God told the prophet Samuel to go to, uh, tell, uh, to the house of Jesse, Yeshai, uh, to choose the new king for Israel, uh, Shmuel, Samuel, he sees this, this, this strong, young, tall, eldest son, right? And he says, surely this must be the Lord's anointed. But God says no. So Samuel goes to the next eldest, also a good-looking, strapping young man, thinking, surely this is the Lord's anointed. But again, God says no. And so Samuel goes to all of Jesse's sons with the same answer. And what does the Lord finally say? First Samuel 16, 7. Don't consider his appearance or his height. This is First Samuel 16, 7. The overhead, please. Don't consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things men look at. Man looks on the outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. And then finally Samuel gets to David, the youngest son. The shepherd out in the field. This is the Lord's anointed. Why? Because he is a man after God's own heart. Don't miss this. God is constantly gazing at your heart. Are you after his? Now, as a a thought experiment, imagine for a minute, if all of the hypocritical religious activity It's completely obvious to everybody. Imagine everybody always knew when someone else was faking it. Well, that's what it's like for God all the time. So let your love be without hypocrisy. Because if you're living under the Lord, there's no place for hypocrisy. Uh, uh, Now, there's, there's a wrong solution, by the way, a wrong solution to this warning against hypocrisy. And that's accepting kind of a a weak sauce, scaled-down version of Messianic faith. 
uh, where you're, you're not fully living for the Lord, and you admit it. You say, well, I've admitted it, but at least I'm not a hypocrite. Uh, and so you, you put your compromise and you put your lukewarm commitment on display for everybody. Uh, but that's not the cure. That's not the solution to hypocrisy. Do not settle for a compromised faith, which is no faith at all. Rather, let Messiah's love completely fill your heart and let it be there without hypocrisy. Let me put something on the overhead here. Often we prefer looking good to being good. Because looking good is a lot easier. So be real. Don't fake it. At the same time, don't settle for anything less than, than God's best for you. Give up your ego. Give up your, your self-driven plans. Uh, die to yourself daily, we're told. Surrender everything to Yeshua. Take up your cross and follow him. Every day is a moment for you to live unto the Lord. And this daily devotion and obedience and faithfulness, this is what the Lord's looking for. He says this in Second Chronicles 16.9. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So let your love be without hypocrisy. And the rest of these 27 character traits are all about love that isn't fake. So, so Romans 12.9 says, let your love be without hypocrisy. And then it gives us this long list of what that looks like. So let's move on. Let's, let's read the rest of the verse. Romans 12.9, let your love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what's evil. Cling to what's good. Let's look at the first phrase. Uh, Abhor what's evil. Now there are three popular compromises uh, I want to mention here as we discuss what it means to abhor uh, what's evil. We'll put that on the overhead. So one popular compromise is to, to, when you're not abhorring what's evil, one popular compromise is simply to embrace sin. Whether this be uh, homosexuality, uh, gay marriage, uh, abortion, uh, premarital sex, uh, fornication, uh, pornography. Our modern culture openly embraces all of this and even attacks you as an intolerant, hateful bigot if you simply affirm standard biblical morality. A second popular compromise is yes to acknowledge something is sin, but to kind of be embarrassed by what the Bible says. So, for example, you know, I've seen believers, they try so hard to fit into our modern culture and to be politically correct, and they say things like this. Well, yes, technically the Bible says homosexuality is a sin, but I feel kind of bad about that. <laughs> I'm not into judging others. I understand where you're coming from. You know, things have changed today in our society. We need to be reasonable and inclusive and accepting and affirming and progress, progress with the times. What they're really saying is this. I'm more reasonable than God. I'm more inclusive and progressive than God. And I think this type of attitude where we're in essence attacking God's holiness, this is offensive to him. We're denying the Lord and who he is and what his word says and his righteousness. We don't need to apologize for God. We don't need to feel awkward for standing for basic biblical principles of morality, which up until re very recently have been universally accepted for millennia. So one compromise is to embrace sin. 
A second is to acknowledge its sin, but to be embarrassed by it. A third compromise, when we don't abhor evil, is to turn grace into a license for sin, as an excuse to continue to sin. And we see uh, one form of this in, in today's easy believism, right? The seeker-friendly, cheap grace, uh, hyper-grace heresy that refuses to preach repentance or holiness and, and proclaims that, oh, by the way, Yeshua can be your Savior. He doesn't really have to be your Lord. But see, this is saying you can have saving faith without that faith actually regenerating and transforming you. My brothers and sisters, that is a lie. That is not the gospel. But it's infecting modern American evangelicalism today, and it's inoculating people from the real thing. So what should be my attitude towards sin? Oh, Paul tells us right here in Romans 12, 9, abhor what's evil. Ask yourself today, Do I hate what's evil? Do I truly abhor that which God says is wicked? Do I have the same attitude towards evil that he has? God is not neutral about evil. Neither should we be. The word abhor here means to hate utterly. It means to to be repulsed by, uh, to despise, to shrink away from at all costs. This is to be our attitude towards sin and evil, no matter how popular or how accepted it may be today in our modern society. Now, how does this relate to love? It's about loving God and sharing his attitude towards sin. And to see his attitude towards sin, to see that well, you you need look no further than the cross. Did Yeshua just die for things that were technically bad? Or for the things that were really wrong. To see the hatefulness of sin, all you need to do is see the blood of Yeshua. His beatings, his scourgings, being nailed to the cross, being forsaken by the Father. Yeshua said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But the seriousness of sin, the evil of sin could be cleansed and atoned for no other way than the very death of the Son of God, taking on the judgment that you and that I deserve. Think about this truth, uh, of the nature of our sin, of our rebellion against the Lord. I'll put this on the overhead. Think about this. Hell is not an overreaction from God. Consider this concept. Hell is not an overreaction from God. Yet many people think it is. And if hell is not an overreaction, then maybe our sin is far worse than we want to admit. We should therefore hate sin. Why? Because it sends people to hell. Because it harms one another who are made in the image of God. Because it goes against the very nature and character of who God is. And rebels against his authority and his commands. So when it comes to issues of hell and sin and judgment, we're either going to do one of two things. So we're going to deify man and, and, and demonize God, or we're going to acknowledge the deity and the supremacy and the sovereignty of God and the fallen, depraved, sinful state of man. We're going to either end up with man as the measure of all things, 
for God as a measure of all things. Uh, and likewise, we're going to uh, look at grace uh, as merely God understanding, yeah, we make mistakes, or as God's unmerited favor and supernatural empowerment uh, upon we wicked sinners who otherwise deserve only judgment. When we understand that the, the depth of sin, uh, the wickedness of sin, that's what makes God's love for us so amazing. That's what makes his grace so amazing. Because only when I begin to realize how wicked I am, do I begin to appreciate what Yeshua has done for me in his infinite love and grace and mercy and kindness. So again, ask yourself, do I see sin like this, the way God sees it? Or do I just see it as some forbidden fruit that's not really all that bad? Put it another way. Do you think you were saved by just a little bit of grace or a lot of grace? (laughs) If by a lot of grace, it's because sin, your sin, my sin, is so bad. Do you realize that sin is cosmic treason against the Holy One of Israel? So ask yourself, have I stopped abhorring sin? Have I become tolerant of sin? Accepting sin in my life or in others' life, that's not love. That's fake love. That's hypocritical love. Psalm 97.10 says, You who love the Lord hate evil. So the second character trait, after, first, uh, after not letting your love be with hypocrisy, is to abhor what's evil. I'll put this on the overhead. Now, the third character trait uh, listed here is then the, the opposite, is to cling to what is good. The word cling here means to join yourself to it, to become part of something. The exact same word is used to describe marriage, describing two becoming one. Uh, cling to what's good. Joining and attaching yourself to what is good. So, so as a good cause, so for example, a, a good cause, a, a good ministry, a good attitude, a good action, uh, that which is righteous and moral and just. And we're uh, to, to not just let love be good, but to cling to it. I should be repulsed by evil, but that which is good I, I should tenaciously hold on to. No, don't let it go. Uh, 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 Paul here says, I should embrace it and pursue it. Why? Because what is good otherwise so easily slips from my grasp. It slips from me. It's like a fish swimming upstream. So unless you're constantly pressing forward in Messiah, the natural tendency is to revert back into the world's status quo. And just go along with the crowd. In our sin nature, we have a natural tendency towards sin that we need to diligently resist. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. When you were first saved, you hopefully you were zealous for the Lord and for his holiness and, and following hard after the Lord. But over the years, compromise can, can creep in. Unless you're daily pursuing the Lord with passion and steadfastness and commitment. So Paul exhorts us here to cling to what is good uh, with a holy desperation. For example... Why do we need numerous confirmations from God to commit to some kind of ministry? But it's funny, we don't need any confirmation to commit to binge-watching binge ten seasons of my favorite TV show. 
So examine yourself. Ask, am I pursuing what's good? Titus 2.14. Yeshua gave himself to us. Why? So that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself, for his own special people who are zealous for good works. We're called to be pure and to be zealous in pursuing good works. Righteous deeds that honor and uplift Messiah Yeshua. So say yes to opportunities to serve the Lord until your plate is full. That's part of clinging to what's good. And if you abhor what's evil and if you cling to what's good, you'll probably end up being accused by some of legalism. If you truly abhor what's evil and cling to what's good, many in our culture, even in the church and in the Messianic community, in our culture, they'll accuse you of legalism. But do not let this deter you from fully following Yeshua. Yes, of course, there is all kinds of actual legalism in the church and in the Messianic movement. You know, obsession with outward forms and and, and rituals uh, and man-made traditions and fences. But if you're following God's word in spirit and in truth and lifting up Yeshua in everything you do, don't worry if others, often out of their own conviction and guilt or out of mockery and unbelief, Uh, cast aspersions on you and call you names. Don't worry about that. Rejoice that you're worthy to be disdained for the name of Yeshua and for his righteousness. Often the world will criticize you by saying something like this. The problem with you, Yeshua followers, is that you're always being known by what you're against instead of what you're for. Have you heard that kind of standard critique? What does that really mean? What do the scriptures say? What was the model of the apostles? What did Yeshua do? What did the Hebrew prophets do? Uh, Were they only known by what they were for and never by what they were against? And the answer for the Old Testament prophets and for the apostles and for Yeshua is no, no, and no. Not even close. This is simply a modern American American secularism uh, and relativism, uh, postmodernism, uh, um, their, their, their disdain for biblical standards and bowing down to their gods of tolerance uh, and hedonism and self-created, individual, ever-shifting standards spewing forth their condemnation and hatred of God and his word. And ironically, that their own assertion is self-defeating. Their own accusation is self-defeating because in the name of tolerance, they're completely intolerant against anyone who dares to uphold biblical standards. So in essence, modern secular critics are telling you to stop abhorring evil and stop clinging to what's good. Stop abhorring evil or else you'll be known by what you're against instead of what you're for. Uh, But the logic of this completely breaks down because if you're for something, you're going to be against something else. So for example, I'm for paying the right amount of money when I put gas in my car. Does that mean you're against paying the wrong amount of money? Oh, no, no, I don't want to be known for what I'm against. (laughs) Don't you see how silly this argument is? If I'm for paying the right amount of money, then yes, of course, I'm against paying the wrong amount of money. So let's not be intimidated by people who are offended by God's word. Let's not compromise in order to appease a, a wicked world. So, of course, I'm against what God says is evil. The same as the Hebrew prophets were, uh, and Yeshua, and the apostles were. They constantly condemned what is evil. 
to not speak and stand against evil, just compromises and waters down and leavens the body of Messiah and our witness. We, as the body of Messiah, are called to take a stand against evil, not to be silent. So we must be both. We must abhor evil, and we must cling to what is good. We must stand against wickedness and for righteousness. All right, let's move on to the next godly character trait. Number four, a brotherly love. Romans 12, verse 10. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Hating evil and clinging to what's good is how you love God. Uh, Being kindly affectionate to one another is how you love your neighbor. Now, I bet most of you can actually tell me the Greek word here for brotherly love, even if you don't know any Greek. (laughs) It's the word Philadelphia. The city of Philadelphia is named after this Greek word. That's why it's called the city of brotherly love. From phileo, love, and Adelphus, brother. Your brothers and sisters in Messiah here at EC are your eternal brothers and sisters. So let's treat each other as the family that we are. There's no greater commandment than to love. And so we're told this in the scriptures, 1 John 4, verse 20. If we say we love God, yet hate a brother or a sister, we're liars. If we don't love a fellow believer whom we've seen, we can't love God whom we've not seen. And he's given us this command. Those who love God must love one another. So Paul is exhorting us here in Romans, just as John exhorts us in 1 John, to have a deep family love and affection for our brothers and sisters in the Lord and especially within the local congregation. But, but what is this love? 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Yeshua the Messiah laid down his life for us. And we are to lay down our lives for one another. If any of you has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, How can the love of God be in you? Dear children, let us not love in word or tongue, but with action and truth. So Paul says, have kindly affection to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Kind affection is a tender heart. It's goodwill, uh, uh, giving the benefit of the doubt, uh, thinking the best, gentleness, friendship, uh, serving and deferring to one another. Honor one another as fellow servants of the master. Having a soft heart towards one another. Not being closed off or bitter or unforgiving or resentful or holding a grudge. So, so if I do something that, 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 uh, or if you do something that offends me, I need to quickly go and make it right. Uh, my heart of love and compassion for you so it will not fail. And people, by the way, who perpetually hop... Uh, from congregation to congregation, they fail to live this character trait. I mean, how am I being kindly affectionate if I'm constantly offended uh, and dissatisfied uh, and constantly disfellowshipping this group and that group, hopping from place to place? That's a problem. We're called to be a family, a covenant community that's built on self-sacrificial servant love that doesn't insist upon our own rights, but rather has the goal and the priority of how can I serve you? 
And from a practical perspective, you know, it's very hard to have intimate, close, kindly, affectionate love and, and deep, deep friendship with hundreds and hundreds of people at once. And that's why our home groups are so important. Please pray about joining a home group. And once you join, be, be uh, faithful in attending. And if there's not a home group near you, pray about starting one. Speak to Dan Bourne or Scott English if you need help getting involved with a home group. Which brings us to the next character trait, number five. Preferring others in honor. Look at Romans 12.10. In honor, giving preference to one another. This is so opposite of the world, right? The world says, elevate and prefer yourself above others. That's only natural and expected and appropriate from the world's point of view. Look out for number one. Assert yourself. Promote yourself. Elevate yourself. Prefer yourself. Don't let anyone else get in your way. Survival of the fittest. But Yeshua's kingdom is an upside-down kingdom from the world's perspective. We're to prefer others, honor others, serve others, elevate others above ourselves. How countercultural, how counterintuitive. This is utter foolishness to the world. But God's ways are not our ways. So who is our model here? Yeshua himself. He made himself nothing, low, of, of no respect, that he might raise us up to share in his glory. So if look at Philippians 2, verse 5. In all your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as, as Messiah Yeshua, who being in the very nature of God, didn't consider his equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So we're to follow the example of our master, Messiah, Yeshua. In fact, some translations of of this verse, Romans 12.10, says this, put this on the overhead, outdo one another in showing honor. Prefer others and show them honor, even above yourself. Now, this really grates against our flesh. We naturally want to say, at the very most, I'll show you honor only to the extent and to the level that you show me honor, right? Quid pro quo. You help me, I'll help you. It's all very calculating and self-centered. And in many communities, by the way, the worst crime, thought often to deserve death, is to dishonor someone. So, for example, in traditional Muslim cultures, they will kill even their own sons and daughters if they think they're dishonoring the family. But at bottom, what is this? This is our ego rising up, pure and simple. It's pride. It's our wounded pride because it's all about me and my status and my reputation and how I perceive others think about me. But the kingdom of God is radically opposite of this. It's making ourselves of no account. It's humbling ourselves, dying to self, crucifying our flesh and our jealousy and our resentment and our pride, and preferring and honoring others above ourselves, and even loving our enemies. My goal, Paul says here, is to show you, my goal is to show you more honor than you're showing me. My goal is to outdo you in showing honor. That's what the verse says. 
But if the truth be known, we're actually very quick to see other people's flaws, quick to notice their failings, uh, or, or them not living up to our expectations. We're quick to take offense uh, and to assume the worst. So instead of outdoing one another in showing honor, we outdo one another in showing criticism uh, and speaking ill and being offended. My holy brothers and sisters, this ought not to be. Paul says, prefer others, serve others, respect others, value others, honor others. And especially of the household of faith. And especially those in your own covenant community. Our own faith family. Can you outdo one another in showing godly love and respect to the people closest to you? Even knowing all their flaws and their foibles. That's a challenge. That's God's command. So I'm going to challenge you to repent of your jaded, critical attitude and disrespect towards others. This has no place in God's kingdom. And it's born only due to your pride and an ego and thinking you're better than them. You're superior to them. But the Lord says, humble yourself and repent. And indeed, these eyes, I said before, are your brothers and sisters with whom you will spend eternity, ruling and reigning with Messiah. So outdo one another in showing honor and value and respect to your brothers and sisters in Yeshua. And by the way, this goes in spade for our spouses. Husbands, show respect and honor to your wife. And wives, show respect and honor to your husbands. Sadly, we fall so far short so often in this. I know that I do, and I repent. We need to honor and respect our spouses. Husbands, how often do you compliment your wife? Is it only when, by the way, you have company over or you're around other people? Wives, how often do you praise your husband? Both husbands and wives, when one of your children is criticizing the other spouse, do you support that spouse or do you undermine their authority? And if, and if you do disagree with them, what happens, do you do it in private? And I ask God to forgive me where I have fallen short of this. No one should appreciate your spouse more than you do. No one should see and praise their giftings more than you do. So outdo in showing honor, especially to your spouse. All right, let's move on to character traits. We're going to close with this, uh, 6, 7, and 8. Uh, about not lagging in diligence, being fervent in spirit, and serving the Lord. So look at Romans 12, verse 11. And it says, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. These are the character traits in which you're to pursue the ministries God has given you. And by the way, we're able to see all of our life as ministry under the Lord. So, for example, your occupation... Your your school, your friendships and relationships, your family, your marriage, your children, uh, your sports, your music, your arts. We're to see everything as ministry under the Lord. Colossians 3, verse 17. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Yeshua, 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything is ministry. And therefore, we're to do it all with diligence and fervor and under the Lord. So first, it says here not to be lagging in diligence. Here's an illustration. What does lagging mean? Here's a, here's a modern illustration. You're playing a computer game or, or an Xbox, and all of a sudden the computer stream lags. Right? It it cuts out, and the middle of and this rainbow wheel of death starts spinning. <laughs> That's called lagging. <laughs> the word also means being lazy or lacking in ambition. So God says here, don't lag in your diligence in living for the Lord and serving him. It's also translated, don't lag in your zeal. Give Yeshua your best. Diligence, it's not very hard at the start of a race. Most people start the race well. Diligence is running the race faithfully every step of the way, all the way to the end, and finishing well. Diligence is long obedience in the same direction. Perseverance. Yeshua faith is not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's like, by the way, eating in a new restaurant. You know, when a restaurant first opens, they go out of their way to please you and to win your loyalty. Uh, They give you free food, uh, extra portions, uh, complimentary appetizers. The manager or the owner comes out to your table, personally says, asks you, is everything okay? How's your meal? Uh, please tell all your friends about us. But a couple of years later, it's not the same anymore. <laughs> the service is slow. Portions are small. The food is mediocre. Things have changed. Not for the best. And if these things don't improve, a couple of years later, that restaurant is gone. And in its place, a new restaurant opens up. And so now you can go back to the new place. Why? Because now there's free food and and excellent service. (laughs) Don't let your ministry, uh, your quiet time, your Bible study, your friendships, your marriage be like this. Rather approach all these things with the zeal of a new believer, with the zeal of a newlywed as a thought experiment, imagine if someone else was supernaturally zapped uh, into your body. And you're on the outside of this imaginary world looking in and observing. Would they do it better than you? Would they have better, more zeal and commitment uh, and a better attitude and perseverance? And would they be better in diligence than you? Would they be a better husband or wife? Now imagine that you were you again. How can you now be a better servant of the Lord, a better Yeshua follower, a better parent, a better child, a better husband, a better wife, doing everything under the Lord with zeal and diligence and faithfulness? Why? Because you're, you, you are someone who one day will have to give an account before the throne of Messiah. You have the chance today to redeem the time Don't miss it. (laughs) Examine yourself. Ask the Lord to show you where you need to repent. Where he would like you to change. And then secondly, Paul exhorts us not just to be diligent and not lagging, but to be fervent in spirit. The same phrase is used in in Acts 18.25 concerning Apollos. Apollos is preaching. We're told he's fervent in spirit. 
He resists, he's resisting the unbelievers. He's proclaiming Yeshua is the Messiah. He boldly preaches Yeshua in the, in the public square, full of the Holy Spirit. And then it says this in Acts 18.25. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord. Diligence is about action. Fervent in spirit is about attitude. Walking in the power of the Spirit. The word fervent comes from the word to be boiling, being on fire for the Lord. So, for example, we read this in Revelation 2, verse 1 to 7. To the angel of the congregation in Ephesus, write this. I know your works and your labor and your patience. You can't bear those who are evil. And that you've tested those who say they're apostles and aren't. And I've found them liars. And you've persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake. And have not become weary. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yeshua Yeshua exhorts the congregation at Ephesus to return to their first love, to be fervent in spirit for him, to abide in him and bear much fruit. And then finally, Revelation 12, 11, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. Serving the Lord. This final character trait we're going to look at today says we're to be a servant. E.C., let this be our prayer today. Lord, make me a servant. Make me a servant today, serving you, serving others. And for all of you who are in any kind of leadership, remember that your number one calling as a leader is to be a servant. Leadership in the kingdom is not like that in the world. And the world leaders lord it over others. But in the kingdom, the greatest leader is the greatest servant, the servant of all. And most of all, we're called to serve the Lord. So that everything you do in word and deed and thought and in relationships be all done unto Yeshua as an act of worship unto him. Amen? Amen. Let's stand and pray. Like the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Father, we thank you today for your word. Help us to let the light of your word shine in our hearts today and examine us. Lord, convict us, Lord, where we fall short. We want to be, Lord, on your potter's wheel, where through your spirit you mold us and shape us and transform us into beautiful vessels of honor, serving you, serving others, loving you, loving others. Lord, help my love to be sincere, without hypocrisy, without ulterior motives, without self-serving or or self-centered thoughts. Lord, today, grant me a pure heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Help me to abhor evil, to not make excuses for sin, to not be intimidated by the world, to not water down your gospel or to pervert your grace into a license to sin. And Lord, help me to cling to what's good, to pursue with passion what's holy and righteous and pure and good and innocent. 
Lord, forgive me where I have failed to show others your love, especially those here in the household of faith, especially those here at EC, my own faith family. Help me to be kindly affectionate towards my brothers and sisters and to outdo them in showing honor. Help me to especially honor and respect my spouse and to honor and respect my parents. Let obedience start with me in my home. Lord, I thank you that the blood of Yeshua cleanses me from all sin as I repent and I trust in you. We thank you, Yeshua. We pray this all in your name. Hashem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.